Welcome to Here's the Scoop, a podcast that takes a bite-sized look at the evolution of food and trends from a uniquely Canadian perspective. I'm your host, Pei Chen. This episode is all about how we dine. I grew up in a home where I had dinner every night with my parents and my brother. I didn't always love that, especially as a teenager, but now I can appreciate that time we had together. But I know in recent history, Canada has seen a lot of different trends with dining routines, especially this year with the pandemic. We're going to talk to a food researcher from Dalhousie University about the uptick in ghost kitchens, food delivery services, and buying groceries online. We'll also talk to a therapist about the benefits of sharing a meal with family and the differences between eating out versus dining at home. But first, let's take a look at the history of how Canadians typically spend money on food. According to the Conference Board of Canada, on an after-tax basis, about 12 cents of every dollar people earn goes towards buying food. So in aggregate, it's about 30% uh, of the total food spend goes to um, restaurants and 70% goes to grocery stores. Um, and that share tends to um, change over time. So basically what you what you see is uh, as times are good, uh, when um, people have more money to spend, uh, you know, good economic times, people are more, better able to, to go out to restaurants. And so that share tends to skew toward, more towards restaurants during good times. Um, and then um, during bad times, it uh, tends to move back from the peaks that it was experiencing during good times. Um, but over time, it tends to average that around 30% or so of the total food spend going to restaurants. That's Michael Burt an executive director at the Conference Board of Canada. He says it's been like that for about the last decade. Keep in mind, we are generally a, a well-fed population. So over time, the uh, spending on, if you look at the growth in spending on food, it tends to lag behind broader spending in the economy as a whole. So gradually over time, food accounts for a smaller smaller share of our, of our, total, our total spent, basically. Um, so that that's that's what you tend to see, and it's it's typical of of a, a well developed economy where the vast majority of the population has enough to eat. Now, when it comes to eating out, Michael explains Canadians are pretty evenly split between fast food and sit down restaurants. In a typical year, it's pretty much fifty fifty. So you know, one for every one dollar spent in fast food restaurants, an aggregate one dollar is spent uh, in sit down restaurants. And then what you tend to see is during a recessionary period, um, um, there's a big shift away from sit-down restaurants. More people are willing to dine out. They, they instead go for the quick service, and many people who might have gone for quick service instead go to the grocery store. And so there's a, a significant shift there, and, and um, that story is true fourfold when we talk about what happened uh, this spring with COVID. Another factor that comes into play is income brackets. Uh, highest income households, um, the highest share of their food dollar goes to restaurants. So it's actually, it's, it's um, almost 40% of their food dollars goes to dining out, if you look at the highest income households. Uh, where there might be a little bit of something that's a surprise to people is actually the poorest income households 
um, are not the ones who spend the smallest share of their FUBO or on dining out. That's actually the middle income households. I, I tend to call refer to it as a smile. So people who are in the, the middle income brackets, they are the ones that spend the least amount of money in terms of their total budget on, um, on dining out. Uh, poor households actually spend more uh, as a share of their budget on dining out than, than middle-income households. Uh, they tend to buy cheaper food products, which usually translates into um, you know, quick, quick service, uh, high-salt type foods. There are a lot of diverse factors that come into play with this smile curve. Access to equipment and kitchen skills, but also shift work with irregular hours and an overall lack of time to spend on preparing food at home. That said, COVID-19 threw a wrench into a lot of these trends. For instance, the Conference Board of Canada has been tracking people's willingness to spend money. They call it consumer confidence. They've been doing this survey every month for more than 30 years. And in the months following the lockdown, consumer confidence was at a record low. So basically you got a situation where um, people are not able to spend money because they they can't. They can't go to the, to many different types of places. They might have spent money, uh, and at the same time, their willingness to spend money plummeted because of what was going on in the economy. Uh, and so the end result is suddenly food, which is a necessity obviously for everybody, became a very big spending item. It was one of the few places where you could spend money at the, the peak of the the economic shutdown. Um, and and so basically the food share of total consumer spending spiked um, considerably. Um, it went from about that, if you think back to that, uh, that 12 cents of every dollar, it went from about 12 cents to about 14 cents in, in the span of a month. So people suddenly started spending a lot more of their total budget at, on food. Uh, and, and at the same time, it really shifted away from full-service restaurants. In most many places around the country, full-service restaurants weren't open, um, or if they were able to open, they were only doing takeout. And the end result was um, that uh, we saw basically in a normal times, roughly 50-50 split between full-service and um, and uh, quick-service restaurants in terms of people spending. What we saw at the height of the shutdown was actually um, four or five times amount of money being spent in quick service restaurants than in, in full service restaurants. So it's a very huge change in terms of how people were spending their money at um, the height of the economic shutdown. With this also came a shift in how often people were eating together at home, which is something Anne Fischel has been championing for a long time. She's a family therapist, author, and co-founder of the Family Dinner Project. She's based in Boston, but noticed the dining trends in recent years in both Canada and the U.S. had families undervaluing the importance of sharing a meal. Tell me why sharing a meal with family is important for child development. Well, regular family dinners are great for the body and the brain and the mental health of children and and their parents too and these benefits have been documented over the last uh, 25 years in many research studies Um, just to give a couple of examples kids who have regular family dinners 
also have lower rates of substance abuse and early teenage pregnancy and depression and anxiety and behavioral problems. Um, it's no wonder, as a family therapist, I say, if more families had family dinners, I'd be almost out of business. <laughs> um, but it's also true that there are nutritional benefits. Um, so kids who eat family dinners have uh, eat less sugar and fat and salt and uh, tend to eat more healthily. And even when they leave home, if they grew up having regular family dinners, as young adults, when they're on their own, they tend to be um, to eat more healthily and to have lower rates of obesity. And then there are the academic benefits. Um, young kids, toddlers, learn more unusual words around the dinner table than they do being read aloud to. And that's important because kids who have more robust vocabularies learn to read more easily and earlier than kids with slimmer vocabularies. And then as kids grow up, uh, elementary school age kids and teenagers, um, family dinners are associated with higher academic success. Uh, Turns out it's even a, a bigger predictor of academic success than doing homework, doing art, playing sports. So there are many many reasons why family dinners pack such a punch um, and uh, contribute so much to child development. Now, as a family therapist, what were you seeing, um, you know, with your your clients and in your practice that led you to um, advocate for this? Well, it's funny. It, It sort of hit me like a bolt of lightning one night. I was seeing a very tense family in my office that's in my home and it sits below my kitchen. And I had popped a roast chicken in the oven at six o'clock, planning to have dinner with my own family after this session was over. And I went down and I was meeting with the father and son and it was like pulling teeth. They were so estranged and angry and tense with one another. And about halfway through the hour, we all started to smell my chicken that was kind of lasting <laughs> through the... yeah, that's a great smell. Yeah, through, through the vents, yeah, that garlicky, lemony, delicious chickeniness. And it was sort of embarrassing because I'm, you know, supposed to keep boundaries between my family and my practice. And then to make matters worse, the teenager turned to me and said, sort of plaintively, maybe a little sarcastically, could we stay for dinner? And in that moment, I realized that, of course, he couldn't stay for dinner, but I was tromping all over their potential dinner hour Mm. by meeting with them from six to seven. And I was starting to read up on all these incredible benefits of shared family meal time. And I thought to myself, I should really just stop this session, give them a cookbook, tell them to go home and make dinner together and eat together, and they'd surely be better off than finishing this very tense session with me. Right. What a revelation to have. (laughs) I know. So, you know, I didn't say that out loud, but I did start to think about the ways that I could bridge what I do in my office to... 
what families can do at home. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the, I, I wrote a, a book called Home for Dinner that was about this um, bridging of of home and practice and the things I had learned as a family therapist and a mother raising two boys. And, um, and so that was the start. And then um, I co-founded the Family Dinner Project, which is a nonprofit initiative that champions the way that regular family dinner uh, can be used to connect families mm-hmm. through food, fun, and conversation about things that matter. Um, and it's really meant to help more families have more frequent family dinners and better family dinners to get all these benefits because the the key to these benefits is really the atmosphere at the dinner table. Right. You know, if it's if it's cold and and distant, nothing good is going to come. So um, it's not just that families need to make sure to sit every night at six o'clock in their seats and eat in stony silence, but they need to have a, a good time and uh, share stories about the day and have silliness and play games and relax and and all of that is really what is key. Now, does it matter if the families are eating out together versus dining in at home if the key is very much about having the meal together with the family? Right. I mean, there are many of the benefits could occur if the if the meal is eaten out of the home. Um, I think that uh, the research suggests that uh, restaurant meals tend to be higher in sugar and fat and salt and bigger portions. So some of the nutritional benefits may be less. Um, Restaurant meals tend to be more expensive. And it's also, there's not an opportunity really to to play with your food, to learn to cook. Um, And it's it's not as easy to make it a ritual that belongs to the family. You know, a family... um, family dinner is kind of a opportunity for a family to develop its own quirky way of coming together every night, you know, where they sit and what they talk about and what they eat and what emotions are allowed around the table. And I think some of that can happen at a restaurant, but at a restaurant, families are more likely to be joining an identity of the restaurant rather than kind of creating their own. Um, And let's talk about what we can't avoid, which is the global pandemic and how that has impacted um, your work or, you know, eating trends in North America. Yes, I kind of joke that the pandemic has done for family dinners what the Family Dinner Project hasn't been able to in 10 years, which is to bring more families together to share family meal time. It's a heck of a way for it to have happened. But my sense is that um, families really across the globe are eating together more than they have in in centuries, perhaps. And it's not just dinner, it's breakfast and and lunch as well. Um, Now, that's not to say that all these meal times are delightful or 
uh, relaxing. I mean, families are so weary right now. Of course. Not just from the pandemic, but from all the financial uncertainty Mm -hmm. or worse, people losing their jobs and the political and social unrest uh, in our country. Um, But uh, it's my strong belief that we've never needed shared mealtime more than we need it right now um, because they it does offer a sense of stability and meaning and identity as a family um, and uh, connection. Uh, you know, I think we and, need that more than ever. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, as you mentioned, um, people have been eating as a family more than you know, ever before, but it was forced. It was like you had to take out all those other options and the only option was to eat at home. And then that's what people did. Yeah, I'm um, hoping to collect some survey data about that to to see what the impact is of of the pandemic on shared family meal times. I'm Uh, hoping that there's some continuation. Right, right. Uh, I hope so too. Uh, Now, what are some resources that could help families? Yes, well, um, families can come to our website, the familydinnerproject.org, and there they will find many resources, especially tailored for the pandemic, as well as others. Um, There's a guide to virtual family dinners. There's a stuck-at-home guide to food, fun, and conversation, and also weekly family breakfast ideas. Um, similarly with fun breakfast recipes and games and conversation starters. That's great. I really appreciate your insight, Anne, because I think it has, um, we often overlook something that we do every day, which is have meals and don't always think of how important it could be, um, especially when you have children involved. Um, Because I just think of, you know, growing up, we ate almost all of our meals together at home. And I always wish we were out somewhere more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it, sometimes you you take for granted something that is so simple, but it's not so easy, even if it's a simple idea. And that's where the Family Dinner Project is trying to to be of help. All right, let's shift gears. Looking ahead, what does all of this mean for the future of dining? Janet Music is the research program coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and says there are three things we can expect. One, more home cooking and growing. People have really turned to, uh, you know, trying baking for the first time or trying food like meals, like brand new meals they've never cooked before for the first time, which, you know, is responsible for some of those shortages or empty shelves at the grocery store. Right. But it's it's a feeling of empowerment for a lot of people to kind of take control of their food consumption by bringing a little bit more food production into their houses, right? So we see an uptick in home gardening. So even if you're in a condo in Toronto, we see people with little, you know, little things of basil or maybe tomatoes on their, on their balconies or whatever. So 
that is something that we are going to continue to look into because it that to me is a really fascinating aspect of what we can do to take control over things that we may feel we don't have any control over. So, uh, you know, in many ways, I think that is a positive um, if any positive can come out of what's happening here with this pandemic. Two, an increase in the price of food. We are going to see a rise in food prices uh, because we're in a shaky economic landscape. Um, You know, people are being laid off and they're losing their jobs. But also, you know, we have large production plants like Cargill in Alberta that are seeing large outbreaks and there's a disruption in production. We're also seeing manufacturing plants that are overproducing to meet demand from people who are kind of over shopping those uh, staples like ketchup and pasta and they have to provide their employees with personal protection gear right so that also increases their costs so all of that will increase the price of food and three people will continue shopping more online for their groceries so we did run a survey in June and people were uncomfortable. They still didn't really want to go grocery shopping. So they're only going once every two weeks, and but they're buying larger orders. Um, many people are now switching to online ordering for their dry goods. So anything that doesn't You know, people are very picky about their fruits and vegetables, so they tend to go and get those themselves. But for things like pasta or canned goods or yogurt, that's easy to click and collect, right? And and it's been, it's good. It's, it's, we're very fortunate in Canada that we can turn to technology to maintain our lifestyles without really missing a beat. She adds the caveat that things are changing really quickly. And as we continue to learn more about how the virus spreads, we will also be able to determine more definitively what the next chapter of dining in Canada will look like. Thank you for listening to Here's the Scoop. I'm Pei Chen. The podcast is produced and edited by Amanda Capito. The sound designer and composer is Olivia Pascarelli. Its executive producers are Jessica Robinson and Kieran Rana, with creative direction by Monica Bielabreski. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe to Here's a Scoop on your favorite podcast player and let us know what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share with a friend who also loves all things food. The opinions shared in this podcast are of each individual subject and do not represent the views of Loblaw Companies Limited or its affiliates.